and welcome to the Church Society podcast. I'm Ros Clark, I'm the Associate Director of Church Society and I'm your host here on these podcasts. I realise that this podcast is going to uh, be heard by most of you after the AGM and Church Society conference on 12th of May. Unfortunately, I'm recording this prior to those events, so I won't be able to give you an update on what's happened. Although next week's podcast, I hope that we will be able to have uh, a little summary and some tastes uh, of what went on during that day. In the meantime, I'm sure uh, any news will be circulated in more immediate ways. So what I do want to do uh, in this week's podcast is bring you some highlights from a talk I recently heard our director, Lee Gatiss, give about the idea of secession. Secession is simply leaving the Church of England, or as uh, Lee called it, checks it. So first of all, let's hear what he had to say about why we are thinking about secession at all at the moment. Uh, Okay, so secession from the Church of England in half an hour. Uh, This has been the elephant in the room in many Anglican conversations over, well, at least the last couple of decades. When are we leaving? or to mix up all the metaphors, what will be the red line in the sand that breaks the camel's back and tips us over into secession? In recent time, this debate has become as fraught as the debate over Europe, with Remainers and Leavers arguing about the timing and the terms of Brexit, or as we might call it in our ecclesiastical context, Chexit. And just as with Brexit, there is a variety of options for a hard Chexit or a soft Chexit. I think we must be clear, though, and acknowledge the growing anxieties which are pushing us towards a consideration of this subject. Firstly, we feel instinctively the displeasure of God at our society and our church. The evangelical conscience is deeply disturbed by the moral climate of our nation and the doctrinal and disciplinary chaos in the established church, such that it is not right to simply keep our heads down in the parishes, as many of our forefathers once did, perhaps to our cost. Secondly, we also feel keenly the displeasure of the hierarchy given the obstacles that we face within the Church of England as complementarian and conservative evangelicals. Our lack of representation among the bishops and senior clergy, the hindrances faced by our ordinands and curates as they try to find a place to serve, and the increasing emptiness of the rhetoric of flourishing are upsetting to many. Third, we sense the uselessness of the Church of England system to combat rampant secular atheism and the widespread ignorance and misrepresentation of our common faith. General Synod panders to anecdotal emotionalism. Archbishops denounce those who stand firm on God's word, word, word. And there seems more energy given to virtue signalling the rich liberal provinces of the communion than in standing shoulder to shoulder with real gospel partners in the global south. 
Finally, the apparent direction of travel on issues of gender and sexuality gives rise to intense discomfort, not just for Anglican evangelicals here, but for gospel partners in other denominations and Orthodox brothers and sisters around the world. Now, we may not buy into Marxist doctrine of historical inevitability. You know that doctrine? So beloved of revisionists who say that we are on the wrong side of history and their final victory is assured. We may not buy into that. But the trajectory at the moment gives us little cause for optimism. Now, I know and you know that there is a counter-narrative on all those points. The Church of England's discipline has held in some recent high-profile cases. We do have Rod Thomas and some generally orthodox bishops. Many local parish churches and parachurch ministries are standing firm, even if national institutions are wobbling or worse. And the official position of the Church of England remains the traditional one on sexuality and marriage. All the same, the pressure points are there and the displeasure of God, the displeasure of the hierarchy, the frustrating impotence of the national church and the seeming direction of travel are all reasons why secession has again become a hot topic. Something must be done. Secession is something... So perhaps we should do it. Well, I think that's faulty logic. Doing the wrong thing can be worse than doing nothing. What we must do is the right thing. But as Grayson Carter says in his study of Protestant secessions in the 19th century, because of tensions in the Anglican communion, at no time in the history of the church have such secessions occurred as frequently or the study of them become more relevant as during the last decade. Nobody is pretending that the Church of England is an easy place to be. It's not an easy place to be if you're orthodox on matters of sexuality. It's not an easy place to be if you're conservative on matters of uh, marriage and gender it's not an easy place to be for those of us who are evangelical, holding a high view of scripture. It's certainly not an easy place to be if you're complementarian on matters of women in ministry, uh, both ordination and consecration. Deciding to stay and continue to minister and serve and be part of the Church of England is not going to be an easy decision. But neither does that mean that leaving the Church of England is necessarily the right decision. So Lee went on to show us how, in fact, almost since the very beginning, people have been leaving the Church of England for one reason or another. And as we learn from those lessons in history, perhaps we can better understand how to navigate some of the tensions that we face in our current situation seeing uh, what has been the effect of leaving the Church of England in the past and what has been the effect of those who stayed uh, and tried to work within its systems. So how did evangelicals navigate this tension in days gone by? And is there anything that we can learn from the past? Let me take you back to the days of the Reformation as we consider first the Brownists. 
In the late 16th and early 17th centuries, the words Puritan and nonconformist meant somebody within the Church of England, somebody who objected to various practices but was within. You know, they didn't like wearing surplices or wedding rings or signing babies with the sign of the cross in baptism, but they remained within the Church of England as a force for change. And although they formed something of a church within a church with alternative networks of fellowship behind the official structures, and they sometimes regarded bishops simply as civil magistrates rather than as their spiritual leaders, their primary aim under Elizabeth I was not political restructuring. There were a few, however, who went so far as to advocate for separation of the truly godly from the national church. They were called separatists or brownists after Robert Brown, 1550 to 1633, who was one of the earliest and most influential of this group. Around 1580-1581, Brown rejected the offer of a church in Cambridge and decided to pursue reformation without tarrying for any in a congregational style outside the established church. Brown's idea was that authority in the church should come from a mutual contract or a membership agreement, if you like, between members and elders. He was, however, uh, arrested and twice imprisoned for preaching at illegal conventicles and decided in the end that he'd had to pursue his goal of purity outside of the country and he left to, uh, to travel to the Netherlands. There was trouble quite quickly within his congregation there, however, and fights about whether the children of believers could be considered members of his new church or not. Things didn't go very well for Brown, actually, so he left uh, the Netherlands and went to Scotland, but he found that the Presbyterians there were worse than English bishops. So eventually he returned to England pretty disillusioned with his separatist road. He eventually came back into the Church of England, taught in a school in Southwark for a few years, and was then instituted as the rector of a village church in Northamptonshire. Okay. Uh, we might contrast Brown and his approach with Arthur Hildersham, 1563 to 1632. Hildersham was also a Puritan around the same time, but not a separatist. Which sounds like a jolly good thing, doesn't it, Mark? Which one was it? It wasn't, it wasn't Barton Seagrave or Walkton, I'm afraid. A church, that's right. It was called A church. He was rector of A church. In A church. Now, all this was fine for, that, for about a quarter of a century. He then was a Church of England rector in Northamptonshire. Um, when suddenly he started getting stroppy as a nonconformist again in the church, he was suspended and excommunicated from the church. Uh, after that, uh, he punched a policeman and <laughs> was imprisoned. And he died in prison in 1633. Okay. Uh, we might contrast Brown and his approach with Arthur Hildersham, 1563 to 1632. Hildersham was also a Puritan around the same time, but not a separatist. He had some sympathy with Brown, 
the Brownists were right about the general increase of all filthy and abominable sins in the land, he said, which made it right to fear that the candlestick, God's presence, was being taken away from England. He thought, however, a different system of government for the church might, might be better. Uh, he preferred a sort of Presbyterian system. But he was prepared to live within a flawed organisation in order to continue preaching the gospel. In her recent biography of Hildesham, Leslie Rowe puts it very well. She says, Hildesham faced the difficult choice of whether to leave the Church of England or to remain within it. He recognised its flaws and corruptions, but reckoned that as long as the gospel preaching continued, this was a sign that God was still present in the church. His decision brought criticism from both sides, from the separatists who argued that he lacked courage to follow his convictions to their logical conclusion and leave an unbiblical organisation. And he also faced opposition from conformists who regarded him as a troublemaker, refusing to submit to lawful authority. Deciding to stay within the Church of England was not an easy option for Hildesham, and it brought years of suspension from ministry and suffering. Although some of the issues may be different now, evangelicals within the Church of England face a similar dilemma today, she says. It's interesting, isn't it? Two uh, men ministering at around about the same time in the Church of England, not long after its establishment in the end of the 16th century, both seeing genuine problems within the church, both recognising corruption, both recognising that there were all kinds of problems with the church's teaching and structures. Two very different approaches. Uh, I didn't include uh, all of what Lee told us about Brown in that little excerpt, but he, uh, after he came back into the Church of England, spent some time as a rector of a parish, as he said, in Northamptonshire, and then things uh, slightly fell apart for him again. He apparently was uh, convicted of punching a policeman, and goodness knows uh, what else went on. He also uh, spent his life uh, going from one suspension to another, and I believe ended his life in prison. Neither of them had an easy time of it, neither staying in the church nor leaving and trying to go it alone made life straightforward. They found that there were opportunities to preach the gospel inside and out, but that there were consequences for gospel ministry inside and out of the church. And also it has to be said, particularly if you were brown, it seems as though the temperament uh, that he had may have had something to do with the rocky road that his ministry went through. I don't say that necessarily people who choose to leave the Church of England are those of a particular temperament, but it may be true of some. And we definitely need to be careful that we're not simply being troublemakers for trouble's sake. In the next section of his talk, Lee went on to talk about the tragedy of 1662, the great ejections which happened in 1660 and then famously in 1662. Though, as he points out, the great ejection is not technically the same as a secession. Now, interesting, the ejection was not in some ways a secession, a voluntary leaving of the established church on a point of principle or theology. 
technically, I suppose, it was a legally enforced removal by way of a change of subscription standards. The impetus to divide did not come from the leavers as such, but from the remainers, so to speak. And its effect was more structurally permanent than any voluntary secession. The next significant voluntary secession was one that I admit I had never heard of, concerning uh, those who left because they objected to the accession of William and Mary to the throne. These Anglicans thought that William and Mary coming to the throne was illegal. They were known as the non-jurors because they could not swear an oath to the new monarchs. Uh, They thought that James II was still the legitimate monarch. They counted among their number the Archbishop of Canterbury and eight other diocesan bishops, several of whom had also stood up to James II when he declared toleration for Roman Catholics. Uh, See Ryle's piece on that. So there were nine bishops, including the Archbishop of Canterbury, and also about 400 clergy. So this wasn't a movement that left on theological grounds, because they objected to the church polity of the Church of England or corruption in the hierarchy or liturgical matters or any of the other things that we tend to associate uh, with secession and nonconformity. These are people who left because of the established nature of the Church of England and their objection to the king and queen of the time. But what is interesting about them is that they left in substantial number, as Lee said, an Archbishop of Canterbury, several other bishops and a good number of clergy, several hundred clergy. That is a much bigger number than in almost any other secession that you can think of. Much bigger numbers to establish what you would think would have a really good chance, therefore, of of establishing itself in a way that would last not just through that first generation of those who objected on principle, but actually being able to establish an ongoing denomination with buildings and resources and future generations uh, of the church being established. That, it turns out, is not quite what happened. It didn't take long in this non-during church for there to be a split in 1717, uh, as some people proposed the introduction of a mixed chalice prayers of epiclesis, prayers for the dead, and so on. Some of them wanted to include that in the new non-juring Book of Common Prayer. Non-juring clergy and congregations declined throughout the 18th century, especially as the cause of the Stuart dynasty, to which it had become attached, also declined. It then practically died out, non-jurism, when Cardinal Henry Benedict Stuart became the Stuart heir, in 1788. Difficult to have a little Anglican secession group that is led by a cardinal. Well, that was the end of non-jurism. And if, like me, you'd never heard of it, I guess that's why. Because their movement was so closely tied with a specific political movement, the Jacobite uh, rebellion, when that rebellion failed, it was hard for them as a movement to uh, hold on to that sense of identity that's needed to continue to exist through the generations. What it was that they had originally um, come united around was no longer a reason to do so. The, um, uh, The 
ruling dynasty of the monarch had changed by then, so the Stuart claim to the throne was almost non-existent. Uh, and as uh, Lee pointed out, by the time it's ended up in the hands of a Roman Catholic cardinal, it's hard for any Anglican movement to really hold on to that uh, as a reason for its existence. So we might look at the non-jurist uh, movement and say, well, that is quite different. And it, it was quite different. They weren't, as I said, trying to leave for theological reasons. They weren't trying to leave because they objected to the state of the church per se. But nonetheless, it is really interesting to me that even with an archbishop, eight or nine bishops, 400 clergy, they weren't able to establish a coherent enough denomination that it could continue to exist for long. The whole of Lee's talk is available to listen on our SoundCloud site and I'll put a link uh, in the blog post that goes with this podcast and I do encourage you to listen to it um, as well as the examples that we've already looked at. There's a lot more detail about the great ejection of the 17th century and something on the uh, Methodist movement that came out of the Church of England in the 18th century. Although uh, uncharacteristically for Lee, we do hear how John Wesley himself was correct in his assessment of the effectiveness of secessions. The experiment has been so frequently tried already and the success has never lived up to the expectation. In this, he was no doubt correct. Somewhat ironically, perhaps, uh, Methodism itself, which was a secession from the Church of England, John Wesley began by ordaining uh, ministers to go and preach in America and other places, has grown numerically, not in the UK at the moment, perhaps it may be declining, but certainly it would be hard to argue that it hasn't been a sustainable long-term denomination. That has not normally been the case. We saw that with the non-jurors movement, starting even as you think with every possible resource, everything going for it, couldn't last more than a couple of generations. And most of the movements which have seceded from the Church of England have been much smaller than that, even from their beginning. In the 18th century, the Countess of Huntingdon's connection was detached along with some Methodists, in the 19th century, various individuals left because they didn't like infant baptism. Uh, there's a very interesting story about the rector of St Ebbs in the early part of the 19th century who uh, was basically ended up as a strict Baptist um, and left the Church of England. Uh, the Free Church of England people began to leave around the same sort of time. Uh, in the 20th century, the Church of England continuing was formed. And there was a gentle drip of individuals leaving the Church of England for Congregationalism and other non-conformist groups. Some good gospel work was done by seceders and some felt liberated by their uncoupling from the established church. They took a stand as their consciences dictated. It's important, isn't it, always to remember that the gospel is not chained that it is the Lord who builds his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. God can work, therefore, in churches inside the Church of England and, of course, in churches outside the Church of England. And we see that uh, in seceders of all generations at all times. Uh, from Richard Brown back in the 16th century, who no doubt was teaching the gospel as well in his church in the Netherlands as he was in his church in Northamptonshire 
whatever the limitations uh, he may have had as a minister, I'm sure they were the same, whether he was within or without the Church of England. And it's just as true today. It's wonderful to look and see the work of our brothers and sisters in Amy churches, for example, the Anglican mission in England, to see how uh, their Anglicanism is expressed even without uh, the structures of the Church of England. Uh, It's wonderful to know that they now have a bishop, Andy Lines, uh, consecrated uh, through GAFCON to uh, have responsibility uh, over those churches, spiritual oversight, and to see them grow and flourish uh, as they minister around the country. And of course, we want to wish them well. We know that there will be people, uh, as many of those Lees mentioned, who will feel it necessary as a matter of their conscience, to take a stand which will involve leaving the Church of England. But it is interesting to read through the history and see that as at every time there have been gospel men who have felt compelled to leave the Church of England, so there have been faithful gospel men who have chosen to remain despite all its problems, despite all the restrictions they may have felt and the corruption that surrounded them, have found that it is a place where they were able to continue preaching the good news of the Lord Jesus, to hold fast uh, to the trees of the gospel as expressed in the 39 articles, the ordinal and the book of common prayer. At Church Society, we are committed to working within the structures of the Church of England, We hold patronage for 130 parishes in the Church of England and we take our responsibility to those parishes very seriously. But we also hold fast uh, to the doctrines of the Church of England as established in the 39 Articles, the Ordinal and the Book of Common Prayer. All our members are asked to sign a declaration not only giving their assent to to those doctrines but committing themselves to contending for those doctrines. Contending in the Church of England doesn't mean sitting around and simply wailing over the fact that there are unfaithful men and women throughout the Church's hierarchy. It doesn't mean simply resigning ourselves to the fact that this is a Church that seems to be uh, Angela Tilby's article uh, notwithstanding in the midst of a liberal takeover rather than an evangelical one. Contending means fighting. And fighting is going to look different for every one of us, depending what our situation is and the battles that we face. It is up to us, however, if we care about the Church of England, if we think that its doctrines are true and good representations of what the Bible teaches, if we see the great opportunities that still remain for ministering within the Church of England to keep fighting for it. And that will mean to keep being faithful gospel ministers up and down the country in the parishes where God has placed us. But it may also mean getting involved in the church hierarchy in other ways. In most dioceses, elections for diocesan synod are happening during May. And it may be that there is still time to stand uh, for nomination to diocesan synod. There's an article on the Church Society website about that at the moment, uh, with several reasons why you might want to consider doing that and having some influence 
uh, over what happens in the church uh, at those kind of levels. You might consider in 2020, when the next elections for general synod come up, that that's something you ought to think about standing for. But even if those uh, ways of participating aren't appropriate for you, you can still be a contender for the faith through prayer, through faithful gospel witness in your local church. Perhaps you could encourage others to consider joining church society and certainly consider joining if you aren't a member already. The work that we do helps people to contend, clergy and lay, around the country as they face opposition and uh, increasing difficulty standing up for faithful gospel teaching, whether that's on matters of marriage and sexuality, whether it's about flourishing as complementarians in the Church of England, whether that's simply about holding to uh, gospel truths of Jesus Christ as the only way to the Father. We know that it is hard to be evangelical and Anglican. We hope that you will want to partner with us as we struggle on contending for the faith in the 21st century, just as our brothers and sisters have done in former years. There are membership application forms available to download on the Church Society website, that's churchsociety.org. If you have any other questions or you'd like to access some of our resources that are suitable for lay people or clergy, for churches looking for new vicars, for people thinking about standing for diocesan synod, and a whole, whole range of other topics, do check out the website. Or if there's something particular that you can't find, feel free to email me, ros at churchsociety.org. Next week, as I'll say, we'll have a report from the Church Society Conference and AGM. Do tune in again then.